This podcast is brought to you by Fear Free, the initiative that takes the pet out of petrified and puts treat into treatment. Learn more at fearfreepets.com. This is the Fear Free podcast series. I'm your host, Steve Dale, with Dr. Sarah Pisano, animal welfare strategist at Team Shelter USA. Do you have uniforms and everything that say Team Shelter USA? It looks, it sounds like an Olympic sport. Yes, I do. I have uniform and my dad wanted one. So he has a, a shirt. So when he ships my books around the country, he wears his Team Shelter USA shirt. <laughs> <laughs> really? I was just joking when I asked that question. So what is, I didn't think that maybe I want a t-shirt that says that. So what is Team Shelter USA? Team Shelter USA is a consulting company and It is just me at the moment, and I do community and shelter assessments all over the United States. I'm part of the Million Cat Challenge team, and I'm over the assessment program for the University of Florida, but my approach is very holistic, Steve, so I'm looking at public policy, intake procedures, population management, live outcome programs, what's happening in the community from soup to nuts. And what I found is so fascinating. I've been humbled through this work because no matter where you are in the United States, we all have the same challenges around this issue of sheltering, and we all have, it's all universal solutions. Well, first of all, and I've got lots of questions that I want to ask you, but I need to call out Dr. Kate Hurley, Dr. Julie Levy, uh, Dr. Hurley, UC Davis, Dr. Levy, University of Florida, for the amazing leadership, the work that they have done for more years than they would ever want me to say in a podcast, uh, to make a real difference hands-on for community cats and for dogs and cats in shelters, prevent them from going in, which we'll talk about, uh, and also to find more homes for them on the way out. And you're a part of that, and thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Because you guys so, yes. are heroes. So blessed. So blessed to be a part of um, that team and, and these colleagues with Dr. Hurley and Dr. Levy. I mean, really unprecedented. And I can promise you that it's happened because they, the core of the leadership is kindness and inclusion and what we have in common and how we can collaborate. So I just feel incredibly blessed to be part of that team. Well, I, I probably will want to circle back to that because what you just said, I, I think, is so incredibly important in the sometimes divisive shelter world because at the end of the day, everyone does want the same thing. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And veterinarians who work in shelter medicine, I believe, are a special breed of sorts because otherwise, I mean, it takes a special person. It's not an easy thing to do. I'm not talking about the politics of any of that or or the opinions about no-kill or whatever. I, I am talking about just the reality of working in that kind of atmosphere can at times be very difficult. Well, I do agree, but I think this, this journey that I've been on for the last 30 years, what I kept seeing as a shelter veterinarian and then as shelter director of a large public shelter we're all, we were drowning in symptoms. We're drowning in symptoms 
with problems. You, you've heard that story with, you know, oh, we have to save these children that are drowning and everybody's there trying to pull the kids out. And somebody says, can somebody go to the top of the mountain and, like, tell the person to stop throwing the kids in the water? <laughs> right? So, like, we have been just drowning in symptoms. And when shelters tell me their list of challenges, and they're so burnt out, and I'm, oh, oh, I hear you, but how about we change the foundation, and how about we set you up for success? And then guess what happens? You don't have those symptomatic issues. And see, that's where all of these um, emotions and divisiveness come in because we are placed, we're backed against the corner, right? So mm-hmm. um, when we are more proactive and set shelters up for success, we're talking dramatic. You know, in just I, 18 of the over 100 shelters I looked at, just 18 of them, I said, let me just run some numbers. And a year after my assessment, there were 47,000 less euthanasias of dogs and cats in those shelters in just the first year. And I'm not a funder. So in so that in, tells you. And in, in, so in one sentence, I'm asking you the impossible because I'm asking you to do it in one sentence. But in, in one sentence, how can that happen? How can America save more animals? Yeah. And again, this is all related. This has everything to do with fear-free. Number one, we have set up this system of animal control and sheltering, what I call the traditional slash broken system, that we just let animals flood into the shelter. And thank God our numbers are going down and down every year. But there's still too many animals going into the shelter that don't have to. And so that safety net and access to care is a huge piece of it. That is probably, if I only had one thing to do, that's what I would focus on. What are my public policies and what are my intake policies? So that I want a really uh, long sentence. No, that's okay. <laughs> so, so I use the term, in fact, and you just did, safety net, and I've been talking about this for many years, that, that we need to provide that uh, as communities to animal intake facilities, both private shelters and municipal facilities as well. And I want to circle back to that. But right now I want to talk about, and I will circle back to that, because I think that's the secret sauce, if you will, uh, that not enough people are looking at. And I am 100% so, agree. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I promise I will get back to that. Uh, but I want to talk about best practices. So uh, animal shelters sometimes... Uh, don't have the best, best practices, or they're inconsistent in what they offer. And and this goes everything, and I'm talking about everything uh, from uh, the way in which facilities are cleaned to, to the way in which dogs and cats are given enrichment opportunities uh, to the way in which dogs and cats are even considered appropriate for that person, but not that person, but that person, uh, when it comes to adopting out that animal. The, the way in which those facilities work with fosters, which increasingly, happily, are, are saving animal shelters and saving the animal lives as well. Uh, that's a lot to chew on, so to speak, but I think that all does tie into Fear Free. Uh, oh, absolutely. And, you know, since 2013, I've been doing these assessments and writing the same reports over and over and over, and I found these 
common threads and quite frankly got very tired of writing these reports. So I published the Best Practice Playbook this year. It's available on Amazon. And coincidentally, um, Dr. Hurley and Dr. Levy are my medical editors. And so the playbook really just outlines the pillars. And Steve, here's what I found. We are so entrenched with this traditional system that everybody's can't see the forest or the trees. And so what I've done is just let's step back. For example, in your public policy, you have an ordinance maybe that says, oh, we have to have a five-day stray hold for cats. Well, when that ordinance was in place 30 years ago, nobody had the data. Well, now we know. Only 2% of cats are reunited from shelters with their original owners. Why on earth would we have a stray hold? It makes no sense, right? We sterilize them, we put them right back where they're already cared for. That's an example of something that saves a municipality and a shelter money. So, but again, I think that it's it's what I found is this microcosm that each of us is sort of trapped in. This is the way we do things, and this is the only way we know how to do things. And so I know for myself, too, I have a microcosm as well, you know. So I've had to really release a lot of my judgment and things like that to, wait a minute, look at this data. This is very clear. And so it's been actually quite easy to update ordinances. And and I work with commissioners and mayors at that level. I work with the shelter directors and set their shelters up for success. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that... Uh some of the boards of directors of these shelters, if, if you had a, if you could snap your fingers and say, I'm going to do something, would one thing that you would do is change up some of these boards of directors so they understood, in fact, what you just said? Yes. Yeah, so here I see, sorry, I separate it. So public with the municipal shelters, what I find is the municipal leaders just don't know. And so when you educate them in a very professional way with data, show them the national trends, benchmark it to their shelter, here's how you can eliminate waste, here's how you can reallocate, and here's how you can achieve success. Um, It's a matter of just they weren't educated, they didn't know. That's been exceptionally easy. On the private shelter side, what I find is board of directors that care very deeply about animals but who are very married to their own philosophies that are barriers to live outcome. And number two, they don't know how to raise money. So they forsake best practices in the name of making revenue, right? Mm -hmm. And they are actually barriers to live outcome instead of achieving their goal of saving more animals. Well, and, and I, I, I absolutely agree, and you and I can talk offline about some boards I've seen. So, yes, I, I totally have seen it, and, and I agree with what you say. The other thing that uh, is happening, which I'm so happy about, is, is the number of shelter veterinarians and the number of shelters that have said, yes, we want a veterinarian on staff. Having said that, I, I don't know. I would assume the majority of animal shelters in the United States uh, may not have a veterinarian on staff, and they may not be considering 
the kinds of things that you might look at and say, we have so much data to show this, but but they're going on what they either have seen on the internet that could be 10 years old. So, you know, we could talk about retroviruses in cats, for example, and and the fact that based on what we know today, cats, even the test positive with feline leukemia, and certainly cats with the feline immunodeficiency virus, can be adopted out as just two examples of what I'm talking about. Exactly. And I want to just back up for the listeners to even say something. When I comment about shelters that I have done assessments with, most of the shelters are euthanizing for space. Okay. So there's, so that's kind of my pool. So I probably should have mentioned that, you know, so I'm sure there's lots of successful boards and, and such, but the shelters that I've worked with um, are still euthanizing for space, and so the goal is to help them transition. Uh, and the topic of uh, shelter veterinarians is a very important one right now. Less than 1% of veterinarians going to shelter medicine. There's a huge shortage. Yeah. Um, so we love, of course, um, when our students, and we have students come and join us on our mentorship program at the University of Florida, so we're raising up the next generation we need more veterinarians in shelters for sure. That's issue number one. Issue number two, veterinarians, are shelter veterinarians, for the most part, are still drowning in symptoms, and they're not part of the leadership teams typically, and so that's a problem, right? Because they might know, okay, these are the ASB guidelines and what we should be doing, but their hands are tied because they're not part of that management and leadership decision-making team. So those are also some issues that we're seeing that we are always working towards resolving. I absolutely agree. So what about that shelter that has a veterinarian on staff, but now local veterinarians in the community, private practices are saying, but you're doing this and you're doing this and you're taking money away from me. I'm telling you, I still hear that all the time it drives me crazy because, in fact, where there is collaboration and there are examples all over America where that's happened, everyone wins. Absolutely, Steve. And this is a mystery to me as well. So if I, was in, if I owned my own practice, I can promise you I would go to every shelter and every rescue within 50 miles of my, me and I would create partnerships because – there's so much opportunity there, but unfortunately, in most communities, all the communities that I've worked in, um, the veterinarians see it as a threat, and I can understand that because it's their business, so they're worried that it's, quote-unquote, taking business. What they don't know is the people that use, perhaps, safety net services or shelter services that might have some medical They've never been to a private practice veterinarian. We, we have lots of data that shows that. So I, I just, this is a huge chasm still. It's heartbreaking for me as a veterinarian to see this huge chasm between private practice and sheltering. And so we're working on all different kinds of initiatives to bridge that gap. And I know Maddie's is focusing on that this year as well, that whole access to care piece. So I'm excited about that. And by the way, the book uh, that we're talking about on Amazon, it's available, The Best Practice Playbook for Animal Shelters. So if you're a football yes. fan, you like a playbook, 
But if you're a shelter fan, you might like a playbook too. The best practice playbook for animal shelters. How important is the fear-free notion and now the certification, if that's the right word, that's available uh, to anyone who's involved in an animal shelter at no charge? To me, it's a game changer. But then you'd expect me to say that because I'm the guy who hosts the Fear Free Podcast. What do you think? So I'm one that I was born Fear Free. I never had a name for it, but I am the biggest fan. And in fact, in the playbook, I wanted Fear Free to be a part of it so that each best practice could be related to a fear-free sort of idea. And so throughout the playbook, you'll see little boxes that say, this is how this relates to fear-free. So the online sheltering is absolutely so crucial. I've seen it my whole career. I have worked very hard to train up anybody who is working in a shelter to just look what you're doing. Look at how you're maybe handling the animal, maybe how you're carrying the cat carrier, et cetera. Um, but all these things about best practice, and we've been talking about safety net and access to care, keeping animals out of the shelter, what happens if they go in the shelter, population management, all of those things help you achieve fear-free. A traditional broken shelter doesn't even have the opportunity to do fear-free because they're so overcrowded, the staff can't see two feet in front of them because they're so overwhelmed. It doesn't have to be like this, and it shouldn't be like this. And that's what we need our municipal leaders to know. And here's the other thing. It doesn't take millions of dollars. You have to have a baseline budget. Um, It doesn't take millions of dollars or a bigger shelter or bigger staff. It takes common sense and strategic policies in place, and it's absolutely astounding and what's happened to the shelters that I've worked with Steve I mean incredibly humbling for me I I said oh you know you'll probably have a 30% decrease in intake if you do this safety net Brevard County did 80% 80% decrease in the owner surrender category so I promise you I have been humbled over and over and over how these simple things add up And that is the only way that you can achieve a fear-free environment. And now there's no excuse. Every shelter staff, leader, volunteer, everybody should get certified. There's no barriers. It's online and it's free. Yep. So everybody needs to do it. And, And in fact, I'd go one step further and say that you don't have to be a veterinary professional by any means. No. To check out this, no, to check out this book, your book. The Best Practice Playbook for Animal Shelters. It's not only written for veterinary professionals, technicians, as well as veterinarians. I would argue uh, every board member, if you're a board member or ever want to be at an animal shelter, but also employees of shelters, particularly those in management, uh, as well as volunteers even, uh, to better understand the world that you're in of animal sheltering, the Best Practice Playbook for Animal Shelters. Now, we're running out of time, but very quickly... I want to talk about, and I kind of buried the lead here, because it turns out that you and I are on the same page about this. You used the word safety nets uh, a couple of times, and I've been using that phrase for many, many years at this point, because I, I have firmly believed that if we could find ways in which, for example, 
And and some communities have limited ways in which this can be done, uh, that those involved in domestic violence uh, want to leave. And we know statistically most won't leave if there's nowhere to go with the companion animal that is with them. And most communities don't have anywhere to go. They might maybe, maybe have a place where an animal shelter will take in an animal for some period of time. But you're lucky to find that in a community. Uh, But most communities don't even have that. We know that in most major metropolitan areas, the most common dog, if you look outside, is a dog that you or I would look at and say, that's a pit bull type dog. They're not pit bulls. They're only mixed breed dogs in truth, right? But nevertheless, that's so you know what I'm talking about, the dog that looks like a pit bull. And we also know that increasingly in many communities... Uh, Those that rent apartments and also condominium associations don't allow dogs that look like pit bulls or they just don't allow dogs over, you name it, 10 pounds, 15 pounds, whatever that random weight restriction is. Uh, There are the financing issues, Uh, a percent of people that sadly, according to many, is increasing that simply cannot afford. They really cannot afford appropriate veterinary care if something happens. So they give up that animal because they can't afford the care. None of these examples I've given are people that want to give up their animals. And we know through data that most people that walk into a shelter and say, here, and give up that animal don't want to. They feel their back is up against the wall and we don't have enough safety nets for those people. And if we could find ways through both changing laws and ordinances, changing culture, etc., and, and just giving opportunities. One, the biggest reason animals are given up? Behavior problems. And if we could solve them, then those people won't give up their animals in all likelihood. I mean, we are not providing enough safety nets, enough resources for people. Uh, that's my view. What do you think? I mean, ditto. I mean, ditto. I could have just said that whole speech. I could have said every single, I could have written that speech just now for you. A hundred percent agree on everything. And I will tell you that early in my career, I was judging those people like everybody else. They didn't care about their pets. We never asked why they were surrendering. Clearly they don't care. So they're surrendering to the shelter. And now we have these studies that show, and now we have these programs that prove that, like you said, more people want to keep their pets. But I think there's a lot of people, like, still with that philosophy, because I get this feedback a lot. I speak a lot around the country, and this is the first thing that people say, well, they don't care about their pets. Why should we help them? And we know that's just not true. And I tell you what, that 2015 study that the ASPCA did, I was humbled and equal parts heartbroken that I had spent time judging those people instead of helping them. And we are, we call it, Dr. Hurley and I call it the economic discrimination of the animal welfare, right, is that we take animals into the shelter because somebody can't afford them, and then we adopt them to somebody who pays the adoption fee. Like, it doesn't make sense. And I know that there's shelter directors who uh, who will tell you it is far cheaper for me to help that person keep that pet in that home 
than for me to take that pet into the shelter. So we're going to do everything we can to keep that family together. So that is, um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Beautifully said. Well, thank you for all the work that you do and, and your colleagues as well. I mean, I respect all veterinarians, but shelter veterinarians uh, have a lot to deal with. And, and the medicine that you practice as a shelter veterinarian, at times, you know, you're doing herd medicine, so that's different in of itself. Right. So, uh, Dr. Brazano, thank you so much, and thank you for your support of Fear Free as well. If you're already thank registered... Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you're already registered for Fear Free, be sure to keep up with all the Fear Free happenings, access the toolbox items, and find all the additional courses at fearfreepets.com. And of course, if you're not registered, find everything you need to get started at fearfreepets.com. If you're a member interested in pursuing practice certification, get more details on the same site under the Veterinary About section. And if you're a pet owner who just stumbled upon this podcast, this podcast, lucky you. You can learn more about resources we have for you at fearfreehappyhomes.com. <laughs>